0: And now, in Matthew 25. This is Jesus really in the middle of a teaching that's involved a lot of things, object lessons, parables. But we're starting at verse 31 as he's closing this out. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. you did it to me. Then he'll say to those on the left, Depart from me, you cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? And did not minister to you, then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And then in 1 Corinthians 3, just a few verses starting at verse 10. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is not far away from us. It is not in the heavens that we must ascend to it or over the seas that we must go to it. You have brought your word close to us. We pray that you would help us to hear you, help our ears to be open, our eyes to be open. Pray that our hearts would be soft. That we would behold you in your great glory. And we be transformed into your image and likeness. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Um, we are this morning covering the line in the Apostles' Creed about the judgment of God, how the, the creed tracks the story of Jesus um, that he was come uh, incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate, descended into hell, descended to dead. He was uh, then ascended from there after he's resurrected. And then the last line of the Creed that really specifically deals with Jesus is, says what is he doing and what will he do? He's seated at the right hand of the Father. One day he will come again to judge the quick and the dead is the version we use, um, and the quick is just an old-fashioned word for telling, talking about the people who are living. He'll come to judge the living and the dead. So Jesus is coming again, and he's coming to judge everyone. He's judging the living and the dead. And so, yes, this Sunday we're talking about judgment, everybody's favorite topic. This is why you come to church, for judgment. Um, you know, in, in our culture today, judgment is exactly what is associated with Christians, and it is exactly the thing that repels people from the church. I don't need that kind of judgment in my life. And, of course, I am a human being who is not perfect, and I understand that. I don't want to come in a room and have somebody tell me how I Should be judged, am judged, will be judged. That isn't particularly appealing to me either, so I get it. And some of the question, the objection is who are you to judge me? Which is, of course, a fundamental misunderstanding of what we are confessing. It's not that I'm standing up at the end of time living and dead, arrayed before me, and I will stand there as judge of all creation. I'm one of the people who will be judged. I'm on the other side of that image in the Crete. It's Jesus, actually, who we are saying is the one who is judging, will judge, and make all things right. But what's important to understand is Jesus's message about judgment, because these are Jesus's words. This is You know, the Jesus, cute and cuddly Jesus that everybody loves, he's the one telling the story about the goats and the sheep. That's his story. That's his thing. His story, his message, his enunciation of judgment comes in the context of the story of Israel where this is a word that has been spoken for a long time. And that's why we read that part in Deuteronomy chapter 30. And In the book of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are perched on the edge of the Jordan River. They're about to go into the promised land this new generation of Israelites whose parents had been at Mount Sinai and died in the wilderness, these Israelites are about to go in and they're being asked to renew the covenant with the God of Israel. They're being asked to say, this is what God has done for your people. This is who he's called you to be. Will you affirm your covenant with him and remember what he's called you to be? That's what the whole book of Deuteronomy is. And so here at the end of the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 30, this is the kind of the punchline of the thing. I've set before you today two ways of living. You can live or you can die. You can be blessed or you can be cursed. Choose life. This is what God wants for his people. Choose life. I want you to live. I want you to be blessed. And of course, the consequence is very clear to them. If you forget, if you deny this covenant, judgment will come. Specifically in the form of being kicked out of the land, removed from the inheritance that God has given to Israel. He's promised to their forefathers. And Deuteronomy is actually just, the end of Deuteronomy ends in such a way so that you know exactly why Israel's history goes the way that it does. The following books are all the story of Israel forgetting. That's what every one of the books that follows will tell you. Israel's forgotten. Israel's forgotten. And God will bring judgment. And in fact, the books of prophecy that we have in the Old Testament you have, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, the biggies, the major prophets, and then there's uh, all the little ones that follow those little tiny books that maybe you've skipped over Joel, Amos, Nahum, Obadiah. Who doesn't love an Obadiah? All of these prophets are coming to Israel over centuries and repeatedly telling them. Look, you are in trouble. The terms of the covenant are clear. You need to turn around and come back to the God of Israel. And what some of them would come and say is, there's a day coming. There's a day coming when God will ride in and he will judge evil. It's called the day of the Lord. It's a day, they'll say, of deep darkness and gloom over the whole earth. You know what Israel's response is? Yes! Good! Because then he's going to kill all those other people over there. He's going to kill the Edomites and the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Finally, all those wicked people will be destroyed. He's going to own those people and kick them out. They'll be banished forever and Israel will be safe. And the prophets say, yeah, but also you. God's going to come and judge you too. And Israel fundamentally misunderstands its position in the scheme of things, assuming that it's because they're Israel that God will not judge them. And the message from the prophets is different. The line of judgment does not run around the boundaries of Israel's borders, it runs on the boundary between sin and holiness. And in that, they are in danger. Of course, Jesus comes in to the land of Israel after God has followed through on his promise. Israel is forgotten time and time again. And they have been ejected from the land, largely erased as a national power. And only a remnant of what Israel was yet remains. And that under the thumb of Rome. And still, Israel is longing for a day of judgment. There's still some part of Israel that is saying, if God would just come and He would set things right and He would punish the wicked, then Rome would be out of our hair forever. And we could be at peace. We could be at rest in the land. We could be in control of our place again. And Jesus sharpens not blunts and makes easier, but sharpens the critique of the prophets and said, you may be better at obeying the law now. Because they were. They learned their lesson. That's why Pharisees existed in Jesus' day. They didn't want to worship other gods anymore. They didn't want to get punished anymore. But Jesus sharpens the critique of the prophets and says, your hearts are as invested in evil as ever. You're, that boundary between sin and holiness still runs straight through you. And so he, at the end of his life in the Gospel of Matthew, this is, as he's looking to the cross, he's telling them that judgment is coming. He gives a variety of stories and then he gives this one where there's this scene, he's sitting on a throne and sheep on the right and goats on the left and we misunderstand what he's trying to tell us a lot of times. I, I think I do, because jesus Jesus says, "The ones who are on the right, they're the ones that that clothe the naked and feed the poor and give drink to the thirsty and do all these things and what we, in our mind that registers as these people have done a lot of things that are good, and they're bank account, they have a lot of deposits of goodness. And so for us, holiness becomes about merit. They have accrued enough things. They have done enough good things like God has paid into their bank account of goodness. Enough things. And Jesus is telling us that these people have enough in their bank accounts at the end of time that they're on the right side of things. And then there's these other losers over here They've withdrawn too much. They are overdrawn on their account. They have been lazy. They have been selfish. They've been self-obsessed. They've not seen what was right in front of their eyes. They have failed to do what they should. These people are, are in debt. And so then holiness becomes, are you, do you have enough good stuff in your bank account, or are you in debt in your bank account? So judgment, then we hear it as a word of all about, are you a good enough person? And all of us are sitting here and we know the truth about ourselves. Almost anybody in this room would say, no, I'm not. I know me. I'm pretty selfish. But what's Horrible and deceiving about that mentality is, it is always easy to find somebody worse. So the way that you enter into the conversation of, am I holy or am I not, do I have enough in my bank account, becomes, no, I'm not not that great, I'm not perfect, but I'm not Hitler or a rapist. I'm not that ISIS guy that was just killed. So, on balance, isn't God pretty much cool with me? Don't I have enough in the bank account compared to this guy or that woman or this thing? And that is not what judgment is about. We have to hear again the words that are in Deuteronomy. This is about life. And death. This is about blessing and curse. This is about a way of being human in the world that God is judging. We work backwards in Jesus' parable and say, if I do enough good things, then God will judge me as good enough and acceptable. But fundamentally, holiness and sin are about the state of our hearts and the continual choice to participate in the divine life of God Himself that manifests and produces all kinds of good fruit. That's how Paul will describe it. Or do we continually invest ourselves in the way of destruction and darkness? The Israelites are pretty much right when they think about the day of the Lord as good news. It is good news. It is a good word that God does not look at the world as it is and say, I will not judge this place. In truth, all of us want a God who judges. We want a God who will look at the world that is full of murder and violation and exploitation and self-obsession and darkness, and we want a God who will look at that world and say, I refuse to leave it that way. I will not let all of these people, these things, this force of darkness go unpunished. You and I are meant to look at the world and be profoundly disturbed. We are meant to be disgusted and to know deep in our bones things are not meant to be this way. And they look all the way from things like murder and genocide to self-obsession that so radically controls us that in our culture it's normal. It is normal to be entirely consumed with the agenda of me and God will come into the world and judge All of those things. Because it's all darkness. It's all destructive. Everything from this end of the spectrum to that end of the spectrum, whether you think it's big or what's small, God is the one who sees clearly and sees rightly and knows that it will destroy you. Evil and darkness does not come to own a tiny portion of you evil and darkness comes to consume the world to ensnare you and I in a kind of slavery that we cannot escape from and to demolish people inside and out Jesus will say steal kill destroy That is the agenda of the evil and the darkness that you and I individually still hide from other people. The things that we hope nobody knows about us are not our pet little habits and vices. They are things, monsters in your closet who are coming to ruin you. And as much as you can look at that person or that person or that person and see how awful it is in somebody else, the, the Christian proclamation is God sees your monsters too. And when we confess that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father and He will one day come again to judge the living and the dead, what we are confessing is that God refuses to allow His creation to remain this way. He refuses to allow darkness and evil and sin to mar what He has made to be good. We think that that judgment is about God's temper tantrum. We think God's judgment, this word of judgment, is just a a means for one group of people to wave a sword in threat over lots of other people. That, That is not the case. As the prophets told Israel, God's judgment comes for everyone. And it is because He is our deliverer. Enemy is, our enemy is not just a series of mistakes that we make. Our enemy is the one that we habitually choose to make an alliance with, it is an alliance of self destruction. So when Jesus illuminates these behaviors that separates people, He is illuminating a group of people on one hand that lives without any self-obsession. They are giving away, looking for those who do not benefit them, looking to the stranger, to the imprisoned one, to the naked, to the poor, and saying, I freely can give away. I'm okay, I know fundamentally that I'm alive in the life of God and I I will be okay because God will take care of me and God has given me so much I can't help but give away. And that heart, that commitment, that resolve, that way of life is a sheep kind of life. And people who, on the other hand, do not see, cannot see, Those who are weak and in need of help and cannot see that they are the ones who can give it are the kind of people who are already choosing death. So the judgment becomes an eternal extension of the kind of choices that we make daily. It is a clarifying of what might have previously been hidden. And and Paul says, all people, All people face Evaluation Day. Notice Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 does not say those pagans over there will be judged. He says all of us will present the deposits of our life before the fires of the judgment of God. And what is meaningless and vapid and ultimately the thin, vacuous nothingness of evil will be consumed before the presence of God. And what will be left is what is good. Do you see that? Do you see the end result of God's judgment? It's the disappearance of evil. You see, what, what is often taken as a word of fear is actually in that a word of hope. That when God comes and does what he says he will do in Jesus at the end of all things, the only thing is, that's left is that which is good and eternal. There is no more mixed bag. In other words, the world is purged of a mixed staging ground of darkness and light, and instead all that's left is goodness, which is exactly what God said He was like in Deuteronomy chapter 30. He said, I want you to be blessed. I want life for you. I want goodness for you. I want this kind of life. This is what I want to do. And surely then, God will accomplish it. God is not looking at your life or mine or all of creation and eagerly licking his chops that he could come and bring hellfire down and ruin you. That is not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is not the God that we see fully, perfectly revealed in Jesus Christ. The God of Israel, Jesus, wants to deliver you and I, his whole creation, from the vice grip of evil. Now, there is another layer to this. Jesus moves on from his teaching in the 25th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, and his life moves to the place of judgment. He moves to the cross, this place of shameful execution, and He dies. And on the other side of the resurrection, in the beginning of the book of Acts, the apostles are, are together and they're trying to understand what just happened because they saw Jesus crucified in this horrifyingly shameful way. They saw Him definitely dead, buried for multiple days, And then he's alive again. They talk to him. They eat with him. They touch him. They hug him. And then they watch him float away into the sky. And they're just hanging out together. And this thing happens where the Holy Spirit comes. There's like wind sound and all these things. And the people who are there are gathered around saying, these people are drunk. They're crazy. And you can't help but be sympathetic to them because this is all crazy. And the Apostle Peter stands up and he preaches the first Christian sermon. And this Peter, who is this bumbling, hit and miss kind of apostle, suddenly stands up in the authority and the power of the Holy Spirit and strings together this brilliant, coherent, theologically astute sermon, pulling from the Psalms and the prophets. And one of the persons that he pulls from is, is Joel, the prophet. And Joel's whole book is about how the day of the Lord is coming, that darkness and judgment is coming. And Peter provides this prophetic enunciation that Joel will say, there's a day coming when God will do this, and then he'll pour out his spirit. And what Peter stands up and he says to all the gathered people of the nations is, the day of the Lord has come. Like so many times in Israel's history, like so many times in our history, we do not recognize and see Jesus for who he really is. And what Peter stands up and says, you didn't understand what judgment was supposed to be. And you don't understand that you've already seen it. The day of the Lord has come. The day of judgment has come. And for you and all who believe... It has come on Jesus and not you. The day of the Lord is this day of deep darkness when God brings the hammer down on evil and death. And Peter says that somehow in the great workings of God's providence and mercy, instead of that coming on you and on me or those people over there or those people over there, it has come down on the Son of God Himself so that when judgment comes you don't even have to experience the fullness of God's fury at evil that wrecks his creation you can only experience the benefits you it is open to you to not even experience the sharp edges of God's sword being brought down against his enemies all you can receive if you trust in Jesus is just the good stuff. There are no drawbacks to this deal. The day of darkness and judgment has come and it's come on Jesus on the cross when God displays in Jesus's own body his absolute refusal to allow sin and death to have its reign over creation anymore. And so this Jesus who is crucified, who Peter says, who you crucified, this Jesus who you crucified and died and was then resurrected and ascended, He is the one who is the bringer of judgment and the receiver of judgment. And it is in Jesus' infinite life and worth that then you and I can become people who are forever in the chosenness of life. We who were incompetent to even make the choice between life and death, just like Israel for all of its history, now in Jesus can receive God choosing to bring life for us. Though our hearts were incompetent, though we made allies with our evil and with our sin, though we still yet excuse it, God refuses to give His people anything but life. So now then, we look forward to this day that we are confessing, it is with great hope. It is not with a lack of assurance. We are not trembling and afraid at the great day when Jesus will come again and judge the living and the dead. We instead look forward to that day knowing the outcome. We are not people who are standing there saying, I hope God accepts me. We are looking back at the cross and saying, God is who he was and who he is and who he will always be. Christ died, he was risen, and Christ will come again. And Jesus will be always who he has ever been. So we are not the people of shame and fear. We are the people of hope. We look forward in joy and in expectation. Jesus is the judge. He will judge the living and the dead. And He will free us all. He will free us all from the power of sin and death. Finally, finally, I will be free. Finally, God will send his fire of judgment on me. Finally, I'm not going to be a covetous person anymore. I will not be somebody who hides the shamefulness of lust or self obsession or deceit to impress you or the murderer in my heart that I often am. God will judge me. Finally. Fully, and I'll be free, and all that's left is the jewels and the precious metals, and the hay will be gone, and the darkness will be gone, death will be gone, sin will be gone. The day of judgment is not bad news, it is good news if you look at it through the window of the cross. So, you people of God, do you stand before this word of judgment? and tremble in fear because you are viewing it through the lens of your own self-sufficiency or you instead look at the great fulfillment of humanity's hopes through the window of the cross. Because the cross happened finally, concretely, irrefutably You are invited to confess these words, not with fear, but with joy. Are you in that position today? Do you hear this word of judgment? And are you overwhelmed by shame and conviction and fear? Today, you need to hear the good word of God's pronunciation. He in Jesus pronounces you forgiven and free his son or his daughter. That's available to you. You have to choose to leave aside the foolish idea that you can put enough in your bank account to acquire a verdict of innocent. Leave aside the ideas of your meritorious bank account and instead throw yourself at the way of life, at the life of God. And if you're here today and you know that you've already done that our our culture our nature pushes us to constantly be de- deceived into thinking that our standing before God in this judgment is all about our proficiency in virtue. And that is simply not the truth. And you have to preach the gospel to yourself again and again and call out what is a lie from the accuser of the brethren and instead tell the truth. And this does not become an emblem or a permission slip to then live your life however you want. The Apostle James will say, look, don't just tell me about your faith. Show it to me. Show me that you're li- this life that you're describing is actually inside of you by the works that you do. And if this thing that you're professing doesn't even bear any fruit, then what are you alive in? But you who love God and trust Him, oftentimes you are so blinded to what God is already doing because the shame of the enemy is so effective at piling condemnation on you. And the word of the gospel is liberating to you too. For one, there's probably people who are watching you from the outside and saying, man, God has done a lot in that person. That person is different. But because you don't hear the notes of the gospel and the cacophony of shame and accusation, you can barely even believe it. But your hope is not in yourself. It's not in what you do or even what you feel about yourself. Your great hope is meant to be on Jesus. So today, if you are laboring under a heavy burden of shame and doubt, you don't have to deliver yourself. You don't have to be your own savior. You can once again let Jesus do it for you. And he is the hero, the great and best kind of judge that all of us are longing for. He has delivered you. He will deliver you and He will surely finish in you what He has begun. He refuses to allow evil to have the last word in you and in me and in all of creation. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank You that we look to You on the great last day, the the moment, the greatest size when you will finally have the last word on evil. We look to you in hope that you are a good judge and that the judgment for us is assured because it was given at the cross. I pray, God, that you will draw people in this room who have never looked to anybody but themselves for assurance. I pray, God, that you would invite them to find their great hope in you. And Jesus, I pray that... All of those who have already done that, who have already made that kind of commitment, but are burdened by their lack of virtue, their, their sinfulness still. God, I pray that you would help them discern the difference between conviction and condemnation. That you do call them to a life of holiness, but a life of repentance is not a life of disappointment, but a life of freedom and joy. You invite us happily to confess our need for You. So Father, I pray that You would bring us all to a life of repentance, of turning around, going back to the well of life that is in You. Help them to be deeply assured that the, on the other side of that turn, that turn back to You, is a Father who delights in them and welcomes them home and will not put them in time out to earn their way back into Your good favor. Your favor is assured because of Jesus. I thank you, Father, for being far more faithful to to me than I am to you. I thank you that you hate evil more than me and that you will deliver us all from the evil that we conspire with. You are great and good, our great and good hope that is sure and unshakable. We love you, Jesus. Help us to love you more. Amen. We're going to take a short break. We're not finished. We're going to bring our kids back in. So if you have kids out in the other building, bring